dollar is at a two-year high, lifted by rising interest rates, strong U.S. growth, and geopolitical jitters. Mortgage rates continue to climb. The 30-year fixed rate average is 5.2% this week. A hot housing market is accordingly starting to cool. The National Association of Retailers reported this week that existing home sales fell 2.7% from February to March, the second straight month of decline. In this edition of Commerce Code, is the finance stack holding fintech back? A conversation with Juan Andrade, founder and CEO of ReBank. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. A big question for the global economy these days is how far economic sanctions against Russia will go, and to be specific, whether Western economies are willing to cut off energy supplies from Russia. Germany would be most affected by such a move, and we got a signal from Germany's foreign minister this week who told reporters that the country aims to cut oil imports from Russia in half by this summer and to stop importing Russian oil entirely by the end of 2022. A cutoff of Russian gas would follow, according to what she called a joint European roadmap. Also in Russia sanctions news, Binance, the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, is cutting off all Russian accounts worth more than 10,000 euros, pursuant to an EU sanctions package. In retail news, Payments.com report this week analyzed the performance of Amazon and Walmart in 2021. Amazon captured 9.4% of American consumers' retail spend in 2021, while 8.6% went to Walmart. This is the first year in which Amazon topped Walmart in overall market share. Since 2014, Walmart's share of U.S. retail spend has been steady at around 9%. In the same year, Amazon had 2.2% of consumers' total retail spend. Performance varied a good deal by subcategory in 2021. Not surprisingly, Amazon had nearly five times the sales in electronics at 24.5% to Walmart's 5%. But Amazon also topped Walmart in clothing and apparel at 14.6% to Walmart's 6.5%. Finally, an item at the intersection of cryptocurrency and retail. According to a report by BitPay and Payments.com, 59.6 million people, or 23% of U.S. consumers, have owned at least one crypto in the past year. Of those, 16.1 million have used their crypto to make online purchases in the last 30 days, and 7.1 million, according to the report, have used it to go shopping at physical stores. Younger and more affluent consumers were more likely to use cryptocurrencies as a form of payment. Perhaps not surprisingly, baby boomers and seniors were least likely to consider paying with crypto. Today on the show, we will learn more about the finance challenges of startups by speaking with Juan Andrade, the founder and CEO of ReBank. ReBank's tool allows startup founders, typically at companies with no CFO or finance team yet, to access all their bank accounts and payments in one place with a single sign-on, easing the burden of tracking finances. Juan, thank you so much for joining us on Commerce Code. Uh, where are you joining us from today? Thanks for having me. I'm joining from London today. Beautiful. Well, look, thanks for being with us. And ReBank is a really interesting organization. And I, I just want to start because we're going to have some listeners who haven't dealt with ReBank before. Can you just tell us what you do and kind of the overall mission of your organization? 
We have been working on the problem of startup finances for a few years now. And the way we describe ourselves today is that we're the financial dashboard for startups. So the problem that we've been focusing on all this time is that from our point of view, the biggest source of finance admin is actually the finance stack itself. All the different tools that a startup needs to use to run their finances is actually what's distracting them from building their company. And how we solve that right now is we do two things. We first ingest all financial data from these tools. And then we also give our customers one place that they can make payments from. And we do this without forcing them to switch products. So Rebank sits on top of whatever your current finance stack, as we call it. What we actually want to do is to turn our founders and entrepreneurs that use the product into passive finance experts. Fantastic. And it presumably lets them get the most out of the stuff that they are using. Exactly. It helps them automate their finances. It means that when they need financial data to make a decision, whether it's spend information, cash position, stuff like that, they don't need to look at all of these tools and put it all in a spreadsheet. You know, they, they just save time that way. It sounds like then you're building Rebank on the basis of there's a lot of great fintech out there. And startups are using that fintech to access their financial data, and then you're making that even better for them. I wonder in what ways you see startups are, are using fintech to really facilitate or to advance their work. It's a pretty simple cost-benefit analysis for them. You know, The more of these tools that they use, the more automation they can have. And the further away they push, the higher of their first CFO or finance manager. So for a founder, a technical founder, getting your finance stack set up in a way that any spare cash is moved into a savings account, that your card earns you money as you spend it and so on, is all really beneficial because it means they can think about finance teams later on. But there's a cost to this that people don't realize, and that's what we've seen, which is the more of these tools you have, the more segregated your financial data is. I first discovered this problem at a much bigger travel company. And like, you know, when you have a finance team of 20 people, you have one person, one person's job is to just to log into every app and just get the cash position for that day. So we know how this problem evolves and COVID and the fintech boom has just made this problem come down into earlier stage companies. It feels like... Even if you have the ability to have the staff to do the thing you just said, log into each app and get the cash position for the day, it's still crazy that you have to have a human being doing that, right? But your, your focus, though, what you're saying is for organizations that don't yet have the 20-person finance team or maybe don't have a finance team at all. Yeah, it does feel absurd until you start using a sort of corporate banking portal, whether it's in the US or the UK, these tools were built pre like before the internet even existed. And, and they still look like web 1.0. It's this weird secret that no business really talks about this. But yeah, no, we target pre CFO companies, because it's just the best way to reach many more companies more quickly and more cost effectively. So I'm curious, you're sitting in the UK, and I'm curious about the differences you see between US and, and European startups uh, in terms of their finance stack. What does that look like? Yeah, well, we learned this when we went over to Mountain View and spent a few months there doing YC. We, of course, spoke to all the founders that we could over there. And there aren't any geographical differences in terms of how you know, entrepreneurs think about their finances, which was just something we had to double check. 
But in terms of the tools that they use, they're heavily influenced by the dynamics in those markets. So in the US, most businesses can thrive without ever going international. So the concept of FX, most banks still advertise free FX, and they can get away with saying that even though they're adding a huge margin sort of underneath that companies don't realize. Whereas in Europe, you can't get away with that. Europeans are really hot on FX margins and like the exchange rates that are being used. So that's one big difference. The other one is that because of all the different states in the US and all the different employment rules in the US, a tool like Gusto makes perfect sense. And it's like very common for early stage companies. In Europe, that area is actually far more segregated until a company like Deal came along and did its own thing. But, you know, in the UK, there isn't really that strong a need for something like Gusto. So, yeah, there are a few small differences early on, but they all kind of converge into the same thing, which is now, you know, bank, an FX tool, accounting tool, and then payroll tools. And, and you sort of build it out. So it all kind of looks the same after two, three years, but it all starts slightly differently. And to be clear, part of what you're doing with ReBank has to do with FX as well, right? So that's we haven't talked about that as much, but that's a piece of, of the functionality, yeah? Yeah, because, you know, within this increased segregation, what we also see is that founders don't really know the difference between, say, Brex and Ramp and Mercury and maybe some other app the way that I would or other people in the industry would. So that's why we give them one place to send money from. And the thing that we are really good at there is giving them the most economical rate. So we don't add any additional margins on top of the exchange rate. There's no wire fees or anything like that. And yeah, that for us has been a huge value point on in the product because like in the last year, we've grown payment volume by 11x just because of the nature of how the product works, which is really cool. Your point about U.S. startups and U.S. companies is certainly well taken. One of the advantages of basing in the U.S. is just you can grow a, a long time before you really need to leave the country. Pretty different if you're starting in Helsinki or uh, other places. So that said, American companies reach the point sooner or later when they are going to expand outside the U.S. in order to continue to grow. So I wonder what advice you have for a U.S. company that's reached that point. They're looking to expand outside the country. Europe always tends to be treated as like a special project by a sort of middle manager, maybe a new international expansion manager. As a founder of Watch Companies Do This, but also as an employee I've been in that European satellite office that gets zero feedback from the US you know, HQ. And I think I've only ever seen the bad side of it. So what advice would I have for US companies looking to expand outside the US? I'd say make it like an executive priority and put the best people on it because there's so much complexity that it can take months or years if you're not really paying attention to which country you want to be in and what the specific rules are for your industry in that country. It's disarmingly hard sometimes to get outside the United States. And one example, there are a few different instances of it, is there have been some pretty smart, reputable American companies that have taken a look across the northern border at Canada and said, how hard can this be? And proceeded to lose a few billion dollars by trying to go into Canada and then retreating because they didn't. And I think this is your point, Juan. Give it the level of attention and seriousness that this is actually maybe going to be a little harder than it looks. So ReBank is new, as you said at the outset, but has some momentum. So as you look two, three, four years down the road, where do you see ReBank? What are your plans for the future? When we started, we 
felt that there were already too many banks in the world. And since then, I think the number of banks has exploded. So we've always thought instead, what is actually missing in this market? And that's why we took the first one or two years to really develop the product carefully with our customers. And we ended up as this hybrid thing, which like doesn't make sense until you use it. That's what our customers used to tell us you know, early on. So for us, our vision is much broader than becoming a bank, for example. We want a startup to be able to operate without a finance team. And the way that we're doing this now is by obviously becoming this middle point for all your apps to go into one place and you get financial data. But what that affords us to do, if entrepreneurs are spending their time there, they also are asking us whether they can pick financial products from Rebank as well. And that's really the next step. Ultimately, in the next five, 10 years, it's all about becoming the homepage for startup finances. I love the model of making it easier to start a company. To me, it feels like that's what you're doing is making it easier to start a company to take a great idea and a great service or product and bring it to market. And we've encountered other fintechs, obviously, through Digital Commerce Alliance and Commerce Code that do that. And it seems like in a pretty core way, that's what you're doing at Rebank as well. Yeah, exactly. And there are a few ways that this is playing out right now. The way we think is the most important way to play it out is by function, by role, because it allows us to understand how the handoffs happen from a founder to a COO to a finance manager and eventually to a CFO. We're getting so familiar with that progression that we think that is going to really help us automate as much of that finance function as possible. And of course, it's not about getting rid of the finance team, but it's actually what's been trying to be happening for the last 10, 20 years, which is getting rid of more and more of that administrative guff that takes up so much of a finance person's week, right? So they can actually spend time with the business, you know, spend time on growth initiatives. Well, and I want to end it there. I think it's a great mission to be able to have people spend their time in highest value ad areas. Really interesting how Rebank has gone about it. And we're grateful for your time and having you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Coming right up, closing thoughts on disruptive innovation. I thought business books were all pretty terrible until I ran across The Innovator's Dilemma by a guy named Clayton Christensen. I'm guessing you either know all about it or it just never hit your radar. Or maybe it was before your time. It was written at the end of the last century and many of our listeners are still blessed by youth. Whether this is a reminder of the book or an introduction, I want to connect Innovator's Dilemma, which is in my view among the best business books ever written, to today's conversation with Juan at Rebank. The Innovator's Dilemma is the kind of book that redefines things you think you already know. It's frame-making on stuff that matters enormously, and it can keep you awake at night. Okay, if you are just the right kind of nerd, it could keep you awake at night. Christensen created an idea that quickly became commonplace, disruptive innovation. The Innovator's Dilemma painted a rich, meticulously documented, and incredibly insightful picture of how disruptive innovation works. In short, the book showed how market-leading products tended to be undermined by small innovators who weren't even trying to make a competitive product. Here's a current illustration. Military drones are sophisticated platforms with a lot of specialized IT, and by all accounts, NATO's military drones are the best. But this year, Ukrainian forces have been getting some good use out of consumer drones that you or I could pick up at Best Buy. They're definitely not as capable as whatever Western defense contractors are selling, but they are cheap and they're easy to use. In that market, they have the potential to be a disruptive innovation. 
they get a lot of the work done at a fraction of the cost, and they're easy to get, and they're easy to use. Christensen's point is that cheap and easy solutions like that get better over time, and pretty soon, even customers who are totally devoted to the best solution start to ask themselves, why don't we just get that cheap thing that everybody else seems to like so much? So, about Rebank. Juan is selling to startup companies that are pre-CFO, as he said. They don't even have a finance staff. They've got founders who need a solution, and Rebank is perfect because they can't afford the time or the money to hire staff and train them to do all the stuff. But right now, I'm pretty sure that big companies are doing something to solve the same problem that's more expensive, more complicated. It involves more staff, more complicated software, and more training. Sooner or later, even the big companies will adopt Rebank or something like it. That's when disruptive innovation delivers real value to the market, when things get cheap and easy for everyone, from the bottom of the market all the way to the top. I've spent my career working with big multinationals, but show me a David and Goliath story, and like many people, I'm always cheering for the little kid with no armor and five smooth stones. It's not that I have anything against Goliath, and maybe this is where my analogy breaks down, so apologies I'm not calling anyone a Philistine here, but I love innovation, and I love it when the little guy wins. To find out more about the latest trends in digital commerce and digital advertising, check out our website, www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, take care of yourself and take care of each other. God bless. This is Dan Carell, signing off. <laughs>